Welcome to Football and Society, a new podcast exploring societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. I'm Norman Rayleigh and I'm joined by Ash McMullen and Chris Shipman. And over the next few weeks, we'll be exploring topics including the ethics and future of gambling sponsorship, community football initiatives into prime neighbourhoods and player celebrations in the postmodern age. Today, though, we're looking at the hidden effects of moving stadium of football fans. Since 1995, a third of all clubs in the English Premier League and Football League have moved stadiums, including West Ham and Man City. Neither West Ham nor Man City built or commissioned their own stadium. Instead, they inherited a stadium following major events in other sports, namely the Olympic Games in London and the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. Richard Irvin published an article in 2019 exploring how supporters of both clubs felt about the move from their traditional home to a new stadium. Richard describes this as a mega event for the football clubs involved. He interviewed supporters of Man City and West Ham about the impact of these mega events, focusing on the ways in which they had changed their routines and habits. Among fans of Man City, who moved to the Etihad Stadium in 2003, the transition was generally welcomed and some fans acknowledged a longing for a new start, although they also conceded that the atmosphere had changed. West Ham supporters were less enthusiastic about their move to the Olympic Stadium. Match days were compared to a shopping experience, given the stadium's proximity to the enormous Westfield shopping complex. And some fans said that the club's history had been sacrificed in order to make the move. Richard suggests that Man City's success since moving stadium has made supporters more appreciative of the Etihad. West Ham have only recently moved to the Olympic Stadium, and time will tell whether the club's supporters will feel more positive about their new home in the years to come. In any case, Richard warns that moving to new stadiums does risk alienating some fans and even losing their support. Richard has kindly agreed to join us today to discuss his research. Richard's currently doing a PhD at Birkbeck University of London, and he's also the network manager for community and clubs at the Football Supporters Association. Richard, many thanks for joining us. No problem at all. Good to uh, speak to you. Equally. Very happy to have you. We'll start, Richard, just out of interest. Where, why did you conduct this research and um, why were you interested in these so-called mega events and how fans react to them? The research actually came out of a conference that I attended, which was hosted by uh, Football Supporters Europe. Um, and it was a getting together of sort of like minds across football research in Europe and was looking at the uh, fan cultures, basically. And I was I was looking for a uh, seeking a topic that was not only of interest to me, but I thought would be of interest to to others, obviously. And um, it, it was kind of at the forefront with um, the the recently moved West Ham, the mooted Tottenham move in in the UK, uh, and a, a number of others that um, you know we've seen across uh, across England and Wales, and also in in the light of some of the uh, the moves in Europe as well. But um, in particular, I, I chose those um, two clubs because neither of them were my own. Um, I did know some supporters from both clubs and um, thought it was a, a very interesting topic to, uh, to to try and sort of compare and contrast exactly what they thought about their experiences. Could it be more? It is a very, very interesting topic and uh, we can move straight on to the questions that we've formulated based on your very, very interesting article. Um, I'm going to start with a quote from a fan that you interviewed. I remember it very clearly. I was in the vast minority. I was dead against it. As I felt that I liked Main Road, I perhaps romantically believed that City were the proper club as opposed to United. That's Manchester United, not the obviously only United Newcastle. This quote, it reflects how, to me, it reflects how fans' identities are shaped through their club, um, how they perceive themselves and how they're perceived by others. And as a Newcastle fan, even though I understand that adherence to a, a constructed collective identity can, can be restrictive and problematic, my support for the club has um, helped me maintain my bond with the area and it shaped my identity as a, a Geordie. And despite having lived 
25 of May, 43 years outside the region. It contributes to my sense of belonging to a, you know, air quotes, homeland. I felt strongly when the um, current club owner changed the name of St. James's Park, even though on a pragmatic level, I could understand that it was a sign of the times. However, I felt that something which had shaped my personality in a positive way was being polluted by the disease of unfettered capitalism. Could it be argued that fans feel antipathy toward moving stadiums as it can feel like they're having their identity eroded? It's, it's a really complex issue. It, it very much depends on a number of factors that, um, you know, around those individual moves themselves. I mean, this individual that you quoted um, there was, uh, was somebody who it, it was um, sort of early to mid-30s, had only, only known, obviously, uh, Main Road as an experience. He, as he said, he was very much in the minority but it was all built around that identity and the rituals around going on a on a Saturday or a midweek to uh, to Main Road, and I saw in that myself very much um, reflections of my own experiences. I actually grew up in a, a boring home county's town, um, found an identity um, through my father's attendance at, at Arsenal. Went to Arsenal from the age of six. Had a season ticket for 35 years, but um, interestingly, three years ago, um, actually decided that I was going to stop and um, have never been back since. Um, so there's all sorts of different complex issues around the identity that you have. Now, my identity there, I felt, had been taken away from me by the behaviour of the owner, the lack of engagement with fans, just the um, the milking of the club um, and its history and all of those sorts of things that go with the modern sort of Premier League experience. And I think that I I, I really resented it. And I think there is some resentment on some people's part. I think it depends on where the club moves to, as I think we've identified in in some of that um, research as well, that the Man City move is a little different to the West Ham one. The West Ham one is a a move um, away to a um, um, a very different part of the uh, the city and um, sort of mire in the Olympic Park and uh, around the shopping centre. So it's there's all sorts of complex answers and reasons for how people may resent it. But as that individual identified, predominantly the um, the feeling has been certainly amongst those Manchester City fans was that the move to a new stadium was was very very positive. The West Ham fans were a lot more divided. It had to be said. Um, Distressed that it is only a very small sample that we um, we took for this uh, particular research, but it, it gave a flavour for how um, people were feeling about those uh, those those moves. Um, you contrast that with um, the Arsenal and Tottenham moves. Um, Arsenal literally just a, a quarter of a mile away at its nearest point. Tottenham just a redevelop- redevelopment of um, of the same stadium. So those identity issues around place aren't there. So again, they, they were um, they were um, moves that I think the majority of people welcomed. I don't think uh, there were too many dissenting voices around Arsenal and Tottenham during their moves as there were perhaps um, at West Ham. Just talking about location, and you mentioned Spurs and, and West Ham, two clubs that have revamped their grounds or, or moved to new grounds. One where they've just reoriented the pitch and one where they've actually moved location. I get the feeling that a change of location seems to be the biggest grievance, the, the kind of number one reason for a sense of upheaval and an upset among the fan base. Do you think that's fair or is it more complex than that? I do think that's fair. I think the rituals that you develop on a, on a match day 
are something that you cherish. Invariably, you will have done those from um, a young age um, with the same people uh, and all of those sorts of things. So that that sense of place is is well very much at the forefront of your mind in in the memories that you have. I think that in in contrast to um, well, the Manchester City move is to a completely different part of town, but at least it's kind of walkable almost from the centre of the city and within walking distance of, let's say, some reasonable hubs, um, the sorts of places that you know football fans would ordinarily congregate. Um, West Ham has some um, elements to it that um, are probably an improvement in as much as um, there's craft beer places um, not a million miles away from the Olympic Stadium that some fans will will find attractive. But to, to many, and particularly the traditional uh, fans that have been going for a number of years, they'll never... Um, they'll never quite substitute for the Berlin or uh, somewhere like that, um, very very close to the uh, to the old ground, and and actually finding and and I, and I guess it's I, I don't know maybe you could go a bit further and say that it's uh, just another little bit of your childhood being taken away in some ways, um, in, in certainly in some instances. So yeah, I think the um, um, the the, um, the idea of place is an incredibly important one, and um, um, whatever you say, unfortunately, we're all um, Relatively modern thinkers, but um, sometimes uh, the sometimes change, and particularly change around things that we love, like uh, like our football team, our football ground, etc., uh, can be just a bit a bit of a step too far. Yeah, it, um, it, it reminded me of uh, to a certain extent of how the Premier League have tried to to play a, a game thirty nine um, abroad, which again is a it, it's kind of on the same path. It ties into the fact that fans are just being completely and utterly um, ignored to a certain extent, and you know, it, there was a little bit of kickback against it in the Premier League, this this 39th game abroad, whereas in Spain, it, it kind of hasn't happened. They've, they've already done it and they played the um, the King's Cup, the Copa del Rey in, in Saudi Arabia, I believe. And, it, and again, I think I think that the, the stadium move without, you know, necessarily real kind of fan involvement ties ties into that. No, no, I was going to say, I think that's right. I think it, um, there's, there's, at Arsenal, for example, there was a... Um, quite a subtle and very clever um, campaign orchestrated by the directors at the time that um, got fans on board um, with, you know, the setting, with the setting up of an independent supporters association who were very much uh, backing the, um, the building of a new ground. I mean, I think that Arsenal fans were probably more on board than, than many others in as much as they realised the limitations of Highbury and with the expectation and anticipation that things would improve and to all intents and purposes, um, they, they had no reason to suspect that they wouldn't with the move to a bigger stadium that could create a lot more revenue. Of course, what changed was um, a couple of different things. Firstly, the um, arrival on the scene of um, people such as Roman Abramovich that uh, changed the financial um, capacities hugely and and the, the size of the TV deals that actually began to dwarf the... Um, the actual uh, match day revenue that uh, clubs got through the gate, etc. So there was there was consultation there, but it was of a very very subtle sort, and I would never say that it was uh, to the extent that it perhaps should have been. And, and like you say, um, yeah, not aware of uh, too many cases where these things have actually been sort of put put out to a vote as such. Richard, I'm just going to read you a quote which I found quite interesting. It says, "I don't think the atmosphere has deteriorated because of the Etihad." It's actually deteriorated because of all seats of stadia. 
the reason that I found that quite interesting is I don't think there'd be many football fans who have experienced watching from terraces that might argue that, that the atmosphere generated when you're seated is preferable to that which you would get from standing, be that traditional or safe standing. I just wondered what the sense was from participants in your research around fans have been seated. Has that contributed to the more placid, sterile atmosphere in stadia, or is it a broader, more complex thing uh, around the commercialization of the game? I think the um, the, the, the seating of, of people naturally um, had an, an impact on um, atmosphere. You, you, you're standing a lot, lot closer in a terrace. Um, you, those of us that uh, you know spent most of our young lives on uh, uh, the terraces in, in, in very close proximity to others um, know that um, uh, the you know the atmosphere generated, the noise generated is is, is totally different. Um, the sitting down of people obviously had had two effects as well. Obviously, it quietened the uh, the crowd to to an extent, but also brought a different um, set of people in because, as you quite rightly say about the commercialization of the game, the uh, the prices suddenly changed and uh, and went up, and as a result, you uh, you do get a different um, um, type of of supporter. There's no doubt, not 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 totally, and there there are still plenty of football grounds that um, are not obviously not quite the same as uh, as when when they were um, terraces, but um, are still you know relatively uh, raucous by comparison to uh, to others. The uh, the Emirates being a being a case in point, of course. But um, yeah, I think the um, that change, um, that commercialization, um, I think appeals to uh, uh, different people. I think the commercialization doesn't appeal to people such as myself. Um, it will still um, the clubs will still retain a, a large percentage of their um, existing fans because you know people are died in the wool. They will not. Stop. No matter um, you know a lot of what a lot of those changes are, and the West Ham fans, I think, um, kind of bore that out as well. In as much as they were um, one in particular that I uh, recall um, speaking to, saying, "Well, I, I actually, you know, I don't enjoy the experience, but it's West Ham, isn't it? You know, I'm still going to go. That's um, they're my club. That's it. No matter what they do to me, I'm still going to go." I kind of had the opposite um, view myself, in as much as. Um, I, I, I just had enough and uh, and decided to um, to walk away. So um, all sorts of different attitudes, but um, and yeah, I think the commercialisation is has had a major major impact on the types of people that are going and uh, and the behaviours. So it's um, yeah, there's there's all sorts of different angles that you could uh, you could take this research actually into uh, um, atmosphere at stadiums, stadia, etc. Um, which um, this was looking at this was uh, was obviously more about the uh, the move itself and uh, and place and the like just to ask a follow-up question i just wondered about that kind of hybrid option that some grounds and spurs that we've mentioned is one example um and having experienced that uh, myself uh, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, option um i just wonder what your sense was was of what the kind of feeling of fans towards safe standing is is that something that would kind of offset that feeling of, of discomfort or do you think it's it's never going to be quite the same as it was in the kind of the terraces of yore as it were yeah i think um safe standing will go some way towards um improving the atmosphere at grounds it's obviously taken a long time and it uh, still hasn't uh, sort of worked its way through as yet um i don't think and this is only a personal opinion that it will ever um 
significant areas of football grounds um, in this country in the future to the levels that it you know traditionally where you know you had two ends completely terraced. I just don't see that as a uh, a conduit to that ever uh, coming back. Primarily, I think because um, there's a again back to the commercialization, the uh, the premium that you can charge um, around seats, and I think that um, there's potentially a little bit of a danger that the uh, um, uh, safe standing is just seen as a bit of a sop to the fans to um, get them to um, you know um, come back into come back into the ground and, and stand. But I just don't think it will be in anything like um, sort of significant numbers. It it will will have a positive boon and. and the, the sense that I get through my my work as well with the uh, the FSA is that there is a a huge um, a groundswell of support for it. Um, you know, very very high levels of support for um, safe standing, and it's something that the organisation has um, has campaigned on um, for many many years, and obviously has uh, has achieved a, a, a good deal of success with it. But um, yeah, I think it's, um, it's it's a very very positive step forward, but. Uh, I don't see it as the uh, sort of panacea for um, the, the change in the total change in atmosphere at football grounds. Personally, there's a term in anthropology, Richard, um, liminality, which describes the process of crossing thresholds from one stage or state to another, and it involves rites or ceremonies to mark that transition. Are you aware of any events or ceremonies held to mark the transition for Manchester City or West Ham when they moved? to these mega stadiums? Um, good question. Um, I, I I didn't actually look at um, that in any particular detail. Both obviously did um, did have um, sort of um, final events at um, each of them. From a personal experience, I, I did see the um, the closing game against Wigan at, um, at Highbury, and that was... Um, in part was done extremely well it was it was tasteful and um it was done with the right amount of um, sentiment and the like and i think it it gave people um that um that bit of closure and um, you know the chance to say goodbye to a major part of their lives and almost like a sort of rite of passage if you like to the uh, to the new ground there were some bits that weren't so good um i remember Roger Daltrey uh, came out and um Performed a song um, which wasn't the best, to be quite honest, and that, again, that's, that's a personal opinion. But uh, you know, they don't always get these things right. But um, to to a degree, I think the general feeling that I've seen, having talked to other fans that have been at these events um, before, is uh, that, that by and large the clubs have actually got it quite um, quite right. They've obviously talked to the right people and uh, and done the right things. I'm not aware of a complete disaster in the, in that line, but I could I, I stand to be corrected on that. As I say, it's not something that I. have Looked at in um, in in any great detail. I think I think the weirder experience perhaps is probably the um, the second rite of passage, and that is actually going into the new ground for the first time and uh, not knowing where anything is and um, trying to uh, sort of find um, your, your friends and uh, the like if you're all seated apart, and uh, and then working out new rituals and new um, ways of um, experiencing um, things. And, and some people like that, and others and others don't, obviously, but. Uh, it's um, yeah, the, the sense of the new will will appeal to some, but not all. Yeah, yeah. I was particularly thinking of the Olympic torch, for example, that's literally moved, you know, from one stadium to another. Another, and yeah, it's, it's strange that you never really hear. I've never heard personally, which is why I asked the question um, of any kind of events like that for football grounds. But 
maybe it's because often they, they leave the old ground before the new one. But um, another thing you were mentioning in your article um, was about the demise of traditional real ale pubs um, and match days becoming a kind of shopping experience now. Um, and that reminded me of probably my worst away day experience uh, with Colchester United when we played Colchester away at the uh, infamous Rico Arena. And the only place to actually go and have a drink outside the ground was the Frankie and Benny's in the retail park. Um, so my question was, to what extent are the mega stadiums now being built on the edge of towns in these retail parks, kind of accelerating the homogenisation of cities in general? And are they linked to a kind of diminishment of local character in our community? I, I think they are. I think that's absolutely right. I think that... Um... Um, it's a it's a major a major problem in, in that respect that that people don't um, um, see something that um, that they're they're used to. I think you know the the idea that of, of going and drinking in the shopping centre at, at West Ham or the Frankie and Benny's as you describe it at uh, Coventry is is pretty abhorrent to quite a large number of um, fans who've maybe gone to those real ale pubs and uh, and the like um, before. But it's not necessarily around uh, the real ale and the like. But it's uh, you know it is a it is a bit of a culture shock. Um, and as I said earlier, I think you know the, the Etihad has is, is relatively accessible to the centre of Manchester, and West Ham has a few plus points to it. But the I think it leads into um, a much more important um, issue, and that is of community and the fact that these clubs are rooted in their communities. And if you uproot them from their communities, then you you end up with a different community and someone one that isn't always necessarily ready to uh, to receive it as such so um you're, you're changing those communities you're, you're somewhere like um, up the, the area around upton park is a much changed place now that you don't have the uh, the 40 or so um you know, or the, you know, the the 30 or so um games of football uh, played around there uh, every year um i think i think that um certain of the new areas will support the uh, the new stadium and um, others will will not not to not 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 so much and um, and some will 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 turn into a fairly dreadful experience as a result. Um, I think there's also another um, knock on effect is that um, with those um, sorts of um, attitudes towards traditional pubs like the places where fans have met up in in the past, um, that's somewhere where non league football, for example, gains because. Um, so many non-league grounds are very much um, in in their towns and cities. Um, they're surrounded by those sorts of establishments, obviously on a much much smaller scale. But actually, people and people I talk to um, that um, join me at non-league football um, are very much see um, a sort of replication of um, the days of the uh, the eighties, the um, for example, in the experience that they have at, uh, at non-league football. You can. You can go to those sorts of places. They're, they're a short walk to uh, to the ground, and um, it's a, you know generally a, a, a pretty nice experience. That's not to say that, of course, that there weren't problems in the eighties. Um, I'd be uh, uh, lying if I said there weren't. But um, in general, I think people see a little bit more of a going to a non-league ground and standing on the terraces with a pint of beer in their hand. A, lo a lot more uh, like a replication of what happened in the, back in the eighties. One of the fans that you spoke to said, and I'm quoting now. If you want to be a big club, you've got to play with the big boys. You've got to have a better stadium. I think they're a West Ham fan, but I'm not 100%. Um, I thought that sense of 
better was quite interesting because I took it to mean in this context newest, which I guess reflects a bit of a consumerist mindset with that desire for the latest thing, be that trainers or the, the latest stadium. I just wonder, based on your research, to what extent do you think that fans are willing to sacrifice that kind of raucous, traditional, combative atmosphere in order to have the newest, shiniest arena? What's that trade-off like? Um, I think it's it's different in those two particular cases. I think um, the, the, the ambitions of the two clubs were, were slightly different. I mean, obviously... Um, it coincided with Manchester City getting new owners, and that was that was you know, no real coincidence. Obviously, that uh, they went through the Shinawatra rage, but then as soon as um, the folks from Abu Dhabi uh, arrived, that took them onto a, a, a totally different plane, and they needed that stadium, obviously, to go along with it to uh, to take them to that level. Um, and I think that that was their aim. West Ham, I think, is the. Um, without um, you know, denigrating West Ham in any way, shape or form, I think the ambition was to get back up to a level um, where they could start to compete within the Premier League, whereas Manchester City was was way above that level and getting into the, the Champions League and the like. And I think that they saw that as a... Um, um, the, the stadium really was only part of it. Um, certainly the ownership of Manchester City was the thing that um, had, the, uh, had the change. Having said that, without that new stadium, those new owners probably wouldn't have been attracted into uh, into ownership of the club. So it, um, it had a... Uh, um, a different um, effect there, I think, um, to to what we've seen elsewhere. Um, I think the, the idea of having a, a shiny new stadium, I think um, uh, the, the there really was at West Ham. There was certainly a uh, a real split in the uh, in the feelings I referred to earlier about whether they should move to uh, to the new ground. Um, there was a very very large number of people that didn't feel that having that. That um, bright, shiny new stadium was really West Ham. Um, I think that you know they a, a lot of people like the fact that Upton Park was an incredibly intimidating place to play at from from time to time. And um, I think that you know people, um, a lot of the the old school fans, if you like, um, saw that as a um, you know, potentially you know, it was going to be watered down at the new stadium. I think that nobody could argue really that it um, um, it hasn't been. Um, and that um, you know, as a result, the experience was was somehow diminished. So it um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a double edged sword. Um, you'll always have um, there's always the chance that if you play in a uh, a bigger stadium, that you'll you know attract a lot more people in, a lot more revenue, a lot more sponsorship, etc. But um, yeah, sometimes the trade off is something like um, that uh, atmosphere that perhaps has uh, contributed to uh, you winning games in the past. Hundred percent. I think it's the it's it's the marketing element of having that big stadium, like like you said, there, Man City. All of a sudden, in this new stadium, uh, are a more attractive prospect for a, a potential wealthy buyer. And the West Ham owners themselves, obviously, it, they saw the pound signs before they saw the, the the possible reality of of leaving the advantages that Upton Park had had brought West Ham. And that ties in nicely to to your role now. In this next question, um, you know, you, a fascinating role that you have as the Network manager for um, community owned clubs at the Football Supporters Association. Um, you know, I think I was I was thinking of, of Bev's um, word in the article. You know, Bev's the West Ham fan who mentioned that although there might be problems, um, we're leaving up park, moving to a new stadium, should never stop going. And then it got me thinking of my own feelings at present and the the detachment I feel. Um, 
you know, there's no doubt I live hundred, hundreds of miles from the club. I've supported all my life. And Newcastle itself is still a club that's located in its community. But the kind of hyper-capitalistic aspect of Premier League football is taking its toll on my enthusiasm for the game at the top level. And I'm starting to look at community-led fan-owned clubs with political identities, such as Clapton, Community FC with Envy. And um, I was just wondering, really, do you, and especially as you see in your role, do you anticipate and, and see evidence of more and more fans turning their backs on top-level football and, and moving towards supporting fan-owned clubs as a, a kind of form of protest at how commercialised it's become? There is a trend. Ownership, I think, is... You need to kind of separate it away a little bit because the community ownership it traditionally has has often come from um, adversity, from crisis, etc. Um, which is a shame because I, what I would like to see as the network manager for community owned clubs is um, a more um, planned um, move into into community ownership. So you know, a structured move into it rather than um, us having to do it out of crisis all of the time. Um, I think that the move, and particularly at my, at my club at Lewis, um, so I'm surrounded on the terraces by people who have got um, other clubs, predominantly um, London-based um, Premier League clubs, um, and have come away because they didn't really enjoy the experience and found something that they liked at um, non-league football. So I think in, in general, non-league is beginning to um, benefit from people losing that um, that, that identity with their their clubs and their clubs owners and the like. I think Newcastle is a particular case in point that um, surprises me to to some extent. In as much as um, the fans remain loyal, they 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 turn up every week, and there's not been a concerted effort to sort of boycott or you know just not go along to games. Um, uh, particularly under the you know with the uh, the ownership that. Um, you have at the club uh, there right at this moment. Um, and that that is, you know, I don't know when that tipping point will be and whether it will ever come, but uh, that loyalty that you speak of and um, the identity, you're obviously questioning um, your own um, sort of faith in what's going on in the Premier prob- probably not necess- only around Newcastle, but what's happening in the Premier League and the hyper-commercialisation and all of these sorts of things. And, yeah, there, there are, you know, these alternatives that... Um, and Clapton is a is a brilliant example of what you're talking about. They do things completely differently. It's uh, you know it's it's fan owned. It's mem- you know, member owned. It's um, um, they have um, they they work it um, as a series of committees without a sort of management board. Um, everything is democratically voted for, or pretty much everything. You know there is a are a series of committees appointed that um, make decisions on certain issues. But you will see as a as a member, that you regularly get an email saying we'd like you to vote on this, uh, and this is, you know, um, to my mind, um, democracy in, in in full flow and in its uh, at its absolute best, and that's how uh, community-owned clubs work. They work as community benefit societies, so one member, one vote. There's nothing, uh, you know, around uh, major shareholders and um, them having the uh, the lion's share of um, well, the you know, the say over uh, over everything, and you get a a democratic vote within those clubs so it's um yeah it's a, it's a very much a different um mindset that has to be um sort of taken on board by fans it's not something that traditionally in this country we um have had a great deal of with the uh, sort of demise and demutualization of uh, building societies and all of those sorts of things so things that around mutualization and the like and unions um going the same way as well it um 
I think these the, the sort of collective um, community aspect has uh, kind of gone a, a little bit from society, and we're just sort of beginning to um, to build that back up with um, people who do have um, um, ideas around how um, you know community football clubs can uh, can work. Do you think the impact of the pandemic may make community ownership more prevalent, more likely? I do absolutely yes. Um, I think that the the primary um, um, advantage of community ownership is sustainability um, that's not to say that there aren't examples around community ownership that um, are are not sort of currently up you know they're unsustainable but um, you know with um, the benefit of, of hindsight uh, of the last 20 years I think you kind of turn that round on its head and say well actually does the private ownership model in football actually work and if you look at what's gone on at um, Wigan Athletic at Bury at Macclesfield Town, um, very close to happening at Bolton Wanderers, potentially happening very soon at Southend United. I would suggest that um, the model that's um, been so successful at AFC Wimbledon, at Exeter City, at Newport County, um, has actually, you know, actually is the um, the way forward and is the way to run our uh, run our football clubs on a sustainable basis. There, there will always be. Um, quirks to that particular um, statement. Um, we've seen in the past few days Wrexham um, be taken over by um, two Hollywood, Hollywood actors. And that there's there's no legislating for how um, people will react to that. We've seen it go before with Portsmouth, and we've seen it with um, with Brentford going back into private ownership, uh, and uh, you know, with varying degrees of success. Let's let's be honest. Um, and yeah, there's I, I, my counter to that is, of course, that um, community ownership there actually is the thing that uh, makes it actually very, very attractive to private owners to come back in and buy those clubs that have been rescued uh, by the uh, by the fans um, from disastrous uh, private ownership and put into sustainable fashion, and then you know, become attractive to those uh, private investors once again. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, I think that there will be more failures um, within uh, the uh, within the private ownership model. Uh, I, I, I can't say that there wouldn't be in, within community ownership, but they are more robust, they are more sustainable, they work um, within financial um, constraints that they have to um, around sustainability because they're regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Um, they stand more chance. Um, of surviving the pandemic than pretty much anybody else. You say in the article that with the 1966 World Cup held in England, there was no requirement for a legacy when it came to justifying the event itself, as there is. Um, so it's very commonplace now, and one of the first things PR around a mega event will actually focus on. Was there a moment or time when this shifted and legacy did become a key concern and to what extent is that related to the rise of neoliberalism and the scaling down of big government in say the late 70s and 80s yeah i think it was after certainly after the uh, the, the olympic games and uh, world cups of the uh, the 80s and into the 90s we begun to see um proper thinking around um, what the legacy might be um for um such places as uh, as barcelona and the like but um then again, um, there's been um, some pretty uh, bad examples of how not to um, um, look at uh, legacy as far as major events are concerned. Um, a lot of um, 
the infrastructure around Athens, for example, not as good as it perhaps should have been. I think the Brazil World Cup 2014 is a, is a good example of stadiums being built in places that didn't really need them um, and the like. But I think there's there's also a, a massive sea change in um, in not as much not so much legacy, but um, the move into um, the types of countries looking at um, these mega events um, and the the slow, um, insidious rise of soft power and um, those looking for soft power um, and to try to change people's perceptions of places um, via these mega events. So I'm thinking of Abu Dhabi and the Grand Prix, Baku holding a Europa League final, and obviously the uh, the 2022 World Cup in uh, in Qatar. So I think we're we're seeing um, a different sort of legacy being sought by um, by different sorts of of states and countries. Um, and I think that that's going to um, probably be the way forward um, as we as we go go ahead over the next sort of um, 10, 12, 15 years, because you're beginning to see certain countries pulling out from. Um, their bids to to host uh, mega events, the, the sheer expense, and I think the um, I'm not sure. I, I, I think within the um, some of the articles that I referred to, there's um, a lot of research being done around whether mega events do actually have a uh, financial and lasting uh, a sort of lasting financial legacy, and by and large, the uh, the research comes up with the idea that um, they they don't particularly have any long-lasting sort of financial effects and only minimal effects on things like participation and the like. So I think we're beginning to see that change. And I think soft power will be the thing that um, dictates where the, the mega events go in the future rather than um, perhaps the, uh, the the legacy in terms of stadia and those sorts of things is concerned. Just talking of soft power, when we think about the, the Russia World Cup and the bid there, which you know was a bit shady, should we say, there was obviously a lot of negative press. And in the piece, you use the term soft disempowerment rather than soft power, referring to that negative press coverage. Just looking forward into the future and kind of future bids, and you mentioned that countries are pulled out of certain bids for certain tournaments. Do you think that in the future, that kind of soft disempowerment, the kind of PR tipping seems to be happening to some extent over the last couple of World Cup bids. Do you think that's going to give regimes who would seek to launder their reputations pause for thought, or do you think that's just wishful thinking? Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's wishful thinking, I'm afraid. I think that um, alongside that um, soft power that um, you know, we, we, we've talked about and many other articles have, uh, have talked about, I think also is the rise of populist um, government, governments as well. Um, alongside that, and that um, you know, those countries will now also begin to um, think about how they can make themselves look good, etc., by hosting these uh, these events. I, I think looking back at the the Russia World Cup, I think you know there was um, a lot of negative press in advance of it. A lot of that, obviously, in this country, was around safety, etc. Um, but um, I think you know there's this widespread agreement that the, the People I know that um, were there. There was widespread agreement that the, um, the the World Cup was run and hosted and um, uh, and went off very very well indeed. Um, so yeah, but I, but I think that um, you know there are going to be um, changes to um, the types of countries that we see in the future, as I say. And um, 
I, I, I think that the, the traditional countries that um, in the past have seen World Cups uh, maybe on you know a couple of couple of occasions, um, they're, um, they're they're perhaps just not going to be in that uh, in that mix in the future. Thank you very much, Richard. I think we're just about done there. Just before we finish up, just where can listeners, if they're interested to hear more from you, catch you on on Twitter or anywhere else? Um, I, I, I tend to be um, a little bit. Um, uh, I tend to avoid Twitter myself. I read it, but um, don't uh, don't tend to tweet. But um, certainly, as far as um, the work we do, I would. Um, uh, the FSA has a has a Twitter feed. That's um, we are the FSA. Um, as far as our own website is uh, concerned, there's um, all sorts of um, things going on 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 that. Um, there, there's news stories um, updated on that um, every day. All sorts of um, useful materials. If you're thinking perhaps of um, setting up your own fan group, or potentially thinking about uh, trying to uh, set up a community-owned club or move your club into community ownership, the, uh, the FSA website has a lot of information um, on that uh, that, uh, that points you in the direction of the um, of how you can do all of those sorts of things. But um, yeah, and anybody that's interested um, can happily contact me via the uh, the FSA. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll leave it there. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. If you enjoyed this show, then please do head to your listening platform of choice and leave us a review. This will help others find us. We would love to hear your thoughts and questions on today's show. So please do connect with us on Twitter at FootballSockPod. Thank you for listening to the show and supporting the Football and Society podcast.